Hey, how it goes? This is Jim Magal coming to you in podcast form for what I think is the 40th time. I have been, I've actually recorded several of these things that I haven't published because I've, I've been listening to them, thinking about them afterwards and thinking, you know, nobody cares about this stuff you just rambled about for 90 minutes. But then I realized that kind of defeats the whole purpose of why I started this thing. I, I didn't start this thing to talk about things that other people would find interesting necessarily. I just did it because early on during COVID, the shelter in place, uh, I was in a one bedroom condo in a very urban part of San Francisco. And so I was pretty much confined and early on, we had no idea how serious this thing was going to be, how long it was going to last. It was pretty clear it was going to be a while, but I was climbing up the walls. And so I said, well, I'm going to start talking. The podcast is just basically a socially acceptable means for me to talk to myself uh, sitting in, in an apartment alone. So I, I can do this and not feel like a complete weirdo. I, I couldn't just talk to myself you know, without a microphone rolling, without the pretense of somebody else might someday hear this. Uh, my grandmother used to do that. Actually, she used to talk to herself. Like you'd wander into a room and you hear her just like having a conversation just with herself about, about something. You could never, you could make out just enough that you knew it was coherent, you know, but she was, you know, this is before she was senile. She was, she was perfectly of sound mind, but she just liked to have conversations with herself. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I, I have too much self-awareness. Maybe I'm too self-conscious. I don't know what it is. Anyway, that's why this podcast exists. That is why I am talking to you now. And that is, I hope that that tempers the expectations for anyone who's listening to this for the first time. How's pandemic life treating you? For me, I think I'm. I think I'm ready for this to be done. I think my brain has started to say, in all seriousness, what the hell, man? What gives? You're working. You're relaxing and unwinding and and chilling. And you're sleeping. You know, you're doing. You're doing the work thing and the unwinding hobby thing and the being at home, just sleeping thing. You're doing that all in one place. And it happens to be your parents' house. And you've been doing this for close to nine months. What's up? So I think I think my brain is starting to, to say, you know, like, I think we need to work on, on moving away from this situation. And so I, I think I think it's going to be possible. Like where I'm, I'm only living with, live with my parents because of this whole COVID thing. Like I thought me being there with them while they're sheltering in place as well, like that might help alleviate some of the isolation that they're feeling. That's that's the only reason I did not do it for financial reasons. 
Um, it's a little bit strange to be close to 39 years old and living with your parents. I never, never foresaw that contingency uh, happening. But it is now spring. I'm actually sitting in my car somewhere on, on the Clinton River Trail, which is a very, very long trail that runs through the northern Detroit suburbs. Uh, I just looked on the map. I, I, I wasn't quite sure what I was at. Um, it's some parking lot. There's a lot of greenery, and there's people biking and walking by, and it turns out it is it is that very thing. I've heard of this before, but I've never gone on it. I'm kind of tempted to, like, I do almost daily bike rides. Like, my my, my mother's friend uh, passed recently, like, about a year ago. Um, he had uh, ALS, and he left behind several things uh, that she took, one of which was a bicycle, which I have been making almost daily use of. Uh, just cruise around the neighborhood. It's a good way of getting in some cardio uh, when it's when it's warm out. I found that uh, as far as the Michigan winter goes, I'm able to jog. You know, if it is 20 degrees out, I can go jogging as long as I'm bundled up. It's 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 bearable. I can't walk in 20 degree weather. I can I can jog, and I cannot bike. It's just if you're if you're having the air cut at you that quickly, you know, with the velocity uh, on on a bike, it's just it's not it's not manageable for me. So anyway, it, it is it is sunny out today. It is a beautiful day, and I, I kind of wish there was some place I could go where I could just wander around without a mask. I may I may get out and walk a little bit on this trail when I'm done podcasting. Not sure. But until I get out of here, as long as I am here, I, I think I'm going to need to start to get out of the house daily and just to kind of maintain my sanity. I think that it's been a productive year for me, actually. Uh, there's been a whole lot of ire and anger about 2020. Like, as soon as the new year happened, everybody was like, all right, fuck 2020. It's done. It's over with. On to bigger and better things. Of course, I I, I think um, I think this was a little bit premature. You know, I, I don't think we're... I don't think we've quite emerged from the insanity that was 2020 quite yet, and I'm not sure how close we are. I think we're still, despite the vaccinations rolling out, I think we're still several months away. But I, I don't quite understand the sentiment. Like, I understand that we all had plans. We all had things we were going to do, and then COVID happened, and suddenly those things those plans basically had a monkey wrench thrown into them. There were certainly things I was planning to do circa February and March of 2020 that, uh, well, those things didn't happen. They have yet to happen. But it was a productive year for me. Like I've said before, I just sort of turned inward 
and started doing, I, I guess what you could call some kind of therapy on myself, you know, like dream analysis. I was able to take the isolation and the solitude, like just embrace the hermit energy and was able to make some kind of lemonade out of it. But I can only take that so far. I think even the most introverted person, even the most highly sensitive person who really can't handle any social interaction whatsoever, like I think they still, I suspect that even those people need to get out and just be amongst other people. Even if there isn't the social interaction piece, you have to believe that there's I don't know. For me, it's it's been bearable because I've understood that this is temporary. Like, it may be a year or two years temporary, but it is still temporary. And so basically the mentality I had around the time COVID hit, I just basically put a pin in that and said, well, we'll pick that up when, you know, life as we know it resumes. So I'm trying to be judicious about getting back out into the world. Right now, there are there are people from the CDC who are actually in Michigan now because of the variants and the cases here spiking. So it's certainly not the time to be cavalier in taking risks. So I'm still being very, very careful about how I venture out, what I venture out to do. You know, if the store looks too crowded, that I might want to go conceivably buy something. I won't go in there. I left the house today to get some art supplies. I wanted to try my hand at uh, painting in acrylic. And unfortunately, the only art supply store that I found around here was Michael's. I was hoping to find some little indie shop that maybe needed the support uh, more than the big chain. I really don't like Michaels all that much. I don't know why. For some reason, there was an art store in Santa Barbara. I want to say it was on Anapamu Street, but it was like, you know, 12, 1300 block of State Street. And that was like a, a really, that was a really good art shop. They had very, very good supplies. They, they they definitely had a focus. Anything you wanted, you could go in there and get. And when I was in Santa Barbara, I was maybe, I was never more than five or six blocks from that place in terms of where I lived. And I didn't realize it until I left, but that was a really amazing art store. Like I went looking for an art store like that, of that caliber, when I ended up in the Bay Area about five years ago. And when I was looking on Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever I was using, it basically said, look, the, the best thing that you can find that's closest to you is this art store in, in Santa Barbara. This was actually the one that if, if you're if you're looking to do art stuff and you live in Los Angeles, this is apparently the place that people go, or it's it's a good place to go. I don't know if it's worth making there's probably alternatives in Los Angeles, but if you're going to be going north for any reason, it's worth making the stop if you're an artist. Very, very disappointed that uh, there wasn't anything like that in Michigan, but, you know, this is not exactly an artsy 
uh, fartsy kind of place. I still haven't quite pinned it down. I think the thing is, I'm trying to say, like, what is Detroit like? Like, what, not Detroit itself, but the suburbs. Like, the suburbs that I've been living in for the past winter. Like, what could I compare them to? I think this is kind of a silly exercise, now that I think about it. Like, there's really no reason to try and say, like, it's, it's kind of like this or kind of like that to give it context. It just is its its own thing. It's its own it's its own place. It's its own identity. It's definitely more conservative than San Francisco, but I think pretty much every place is. Um, there are cultural elements here that I, I don't think you would find in uh, coastal California. Not bad elements. They're just they're just different. But certainly not. Certainly not an artistic place. I don't think this is where if you're a poet. I think it would be, this would be a strange place to try and, try and make a life work. Probably could be done. Actually, I had an, I had an uncle who, he died a long time ago. But he was, he was actually a poet. He worked at an insurance company doing something, like his day job. But that was basically to fund a more artistic lifestyle outside of, outside of work. I don't know, I wouldn't do that now. If I were if I were a poet or a painter, if I was some kind of artist, I'm not sure this is the place I would uh, use as my muse. Don't know. I've also tried going into, so I'm interested in reading The Little Prince. One of my exes, I remember she talked about this book quite a bit, and it turns out it's, I think it was written by somebody who was French. He was a pilot, and I think he died Mr. Like, tragically in some some accident. I think he, they, they found the plane that they think he, he flew off in, and they, they assume that he, he passed, but... Um, this is apparently one of those classic children's books, kind of like a Ferdinand the Bull. But there are people who love this book. People who like this book really, really love it, and they swear by it. It's kind of a, uh, I don't want to say Bible, but it's it's kind of a guideline for living. People people who like it really like it. They swear that there's something something profound in it. And there's a book that I'm reading. It's written by a Jungian psychologist, um, Marie-Louise von Franz, who actually was Jung's apprentice for several decades. She worked with him very, very closely on several things. And she's probably one of the clearest expositors of Jungian psychology that exists, if you're, if you're interested, even better than Jung himself. Jung always wrote in a very elliptical, cryptic kind of way. Um, she has a way of phrasing things that are much simpler, and she happened to be extremely well-educated as far as the humanities go. She can make reference to uh, philosophy, history, ethnology, philology. Like, she she gave off, she gives off the, the, the sense of expertise 
in several disciplines. She's one of those rare people that can actually, I guess if you're interested in the stuff, it's written in an engaging way, but every sentence she writes just has some insight in it or some interesting piece of trivia. You know, there's, there's no real filler there. And she wrote a book called The, the Problem of the Pueraternus. The Pueraternus. Pueraternus is Latin for eternal child. It is an archetype like Peter Pan or Tuck Everlasting, a character who does not age. It's the, um, the man-child who's caught in a case of arrested development who won't uh, grow up and lead a normal life. Reading that one, uh, that actually focuses quite heavily, at least the first two-thirds focus on discussions of themes in The Little Prince, which I haven't read. And I can read the lectures. Uh, they're interesting enough even without having read the book, but I'm curious about reading the book so I can ha understand more closely what she's talking about. It's like understand what it is my ex talked about. You know, why why was she so interested in the book? What was it that appealed to her? So I've gone into a few Barnes and Nobles in the last few weeks, and I've I've noticed this. Like whenever I go in there, nobody ever asks me if I need help. Like people, like I'll pass an employee, kind of like let them go by me with six feet of social distance and they might look at me and smile, you know, or wave or something, you know, some friendly gesture. But a few weeks ago, like I was standing somewhere looking at something and some employee walked by and asked some people who were to my right, not in the same aisle, but they were somewhere to my right in terms of relation to me in the store, you know, do you guys need help finding anything? No, 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 just, just browsing. And then the person walked by me. I know that they saw me and then asked somebody over to my left if they needed any help finding anything. Something like that has happened the last several times I've been in a Barnes and Noble. Like I'm walking around aimlessly like I'm almost always looking for something and I'm often not quite sure where to go. Uh, like my, my interests are very varied now. So like I will actually, I, I actually went looking yesterday for the poetry section. I don't uh, really care much for poetry, but I'm interested in reading some William Blake. Uh, I'm trying to find a book that has also the art that he did. Actually, that might be in, maybe that's in the painting or art section now that I think about it. But anyway, I'll look for an employee, I'll find one, I'll make eye contact, I'll get a friendly smile, but nobody ever asks me if I need help. Can I help you find anything? They'll ask anybody around me, but they won't ask me. And the last few times I've, I've wandered into Barnes and Noble and I've gone to the children's section to look for the little prince, which feels strange. I mean, there's certainly nothing, I don't have a problem with it, but I do wonder how it must look. I am just some, you know, I have like really long hair now. I have not cut my hair in 
probably a year and a half. I think around Halloween, Thanksgiving of 2019 is the last time I got a haircut. If then. So it's it's down to my shoulders now. It is as long as it was, I think, in high school uh, when I cut it off at the end of my senior year. I've kind of kind of think it, I, I sort of look villainous at this point. Like I looked at myself in the mirror a couple of days ago and I was like, I wonder if I, I don't cut this. When COVID is done, I find my way back out to California. Just go on, uh, go down to Hollywood, go to Los Angeles and go on some casting calls. You know, like the way I look right now is like I've, I'm tall, very gaunt looking. I have this like long hair you know, starting to get a little bit more distinguished you know, as I approach 40, I was like, I could probably like play a villain. Like, I feel like I could be cast that way. Like a guy who's just dressed all in black and like some sort of trench coat or something just looks menacing, you know, doesn't smile. I was like, I feel like I could be put in that part and just, it would creep people out. You know, if I don't smile, I think I, I tend to give off that sort of villainous vibe so so that's me the thing is i am dressed in like athletic clothes like i have jeans and maybe a a, a running sweatshirt on um and some hiking shoes i don't know how it looks like i just sort of wander into the children's section of barnes and noble and sort of meander around looking for something I don't hang around in there. I, I I just sort of look for what I'm looking for. And, and you know, uh, if I don't find it, I, I move on. But the three times I've done that, there has been somebody, an employee, like, managing the children's section, sitting at a register doing something or shelving books. And they'll ask everybody else who passes through, like, can I help you find anything? It'll be like this nice conversation. They never say anything to me. Again, they look friendly, but they never ask me if I need help finding anything. And to be perfectly honest, I know that I can ask. I'm. This is not lost on me that I could just say, "Hey, I would like to know where you know uh, the little prince is." It's by Saint Expiry. That's not how you pronounce it in French, but. I could ask this, but at this point, I'm a little more, I'm more curious about doing the social experiment of how many visits will it take before somebody just asks me if I need help when I clearly am struggling to find something like that's actually more interesting to me now. This is how boring my life is. This is actually more interesting to me now as a kind of experiment than it is to like just find the book, take it home and read it. Yeah, gotta say too, this is a footnote to what I mentioned before, but the long hair, it kind of bothers me. Not least of all because my hair is now thinning. Uh, you know, as you upper 30s, of course, you know, it starts to fall out, um, which is annoying because there are long strands of it that will just end up everywhere, you know, 
I have I have to clean out my Roomba or my, my parents' Roomba after I let it run through my room. There's like all this hair in it, these long strands of hair. And it's just, it's, uh, yeah, I'll wake up and I'll, you know that feeling like when you get a hair in your throat and it's like you can't quite cough it up or swallow it. It's just there until you, until it decides of its own volition that it's going to move on somehow, you know. Uh, this sort of thing. It just it, hair is just annoying. I don't quite. I don't know what I'm doing with it, and I'm not committed to it enough to know how to manage it. I guess, I guess it's it's just starting to drive me nuts. I will not. Uh, I will not miss it. I'm, I'm quite. I'm quite anxious to get into a barber shop and say, cut this down for me. But for the moment, I guess it's um doing all right yeah what else is going on i had a stressful week at work um yeah that was basically like i i guess i not to expound on that too much i try not to talk about the specifics of my job what's going on but i was i was offered a promotion and I, I, I had to turn it down, yeah, largely for personal reasons, uh, which was a bummer. But I realized that was it was mostly COVID circumstances. I was like, I can't take on a bunch of new challenges and a bunch of new stress that I, I might conceivably not be able to handle myself, given my personal circumstances. I was like, work is kind of my rock right now. Like, it's work that I know I can do. It's a sense of routine and stability in this otherwise unstable situation. I was like, I can't throw a monkey wrench into that, even if it makes professional sense, even if it would, you know, would foster growth. You know, um, professional growth always comes with some kind of stress. You need to be willing to push yourself. And I'm not in a place where I can do that right now. It would be different if I were still living in San Francisco. But I thought about it long and hard. And I was like, I just I can't do it. So, I mean. The situation at work is definitely going to shift. And I don't know what that means for me exactly. I don't know what that means, how, where I end up. But, uh, you know, it's it's still a good company. Honestly, like they um, they sent out to all their employees a kind of goodie box. Uh, I got it like a couple weeks ago. There was like a, a nice blanket in it, uh, some cozy socks a s'mores kit, uh, a tea strainer, and a, a, some relaxing valerian root tea. There's just this box showed up, FedEx. It was like overnighted, and it was... Um, but it was, that was, that's awfully thoughtful. That's one of those bonus things, you know, working for a company in, in like Silicon Valley. Uh, you come to take those sorts of things for granted. Like the fact that the, I don't know, this, this is starting to sound like a backdoor brag. I'll cut this off. All this to say, like, it's, it's, I'm definitely happy where I'm at. I definitely like, I like the job. But, you know, when there's shakeups, when teams get reorganized, when you're offered a promotion, you have to really think about, is this good for me or not? Like those things always jar me. 
psychologically, they always force me to, to step back and take some perspective on things. And yeah. So it was, it was a weird, stressful week. It's uh Sunday now. It's been a, it's been a lazy weekend. I feel like I've just been, I've just been sleeping. Like I pretty much just slept all day yesterday and I just lazed around uh, most of this morning, you know, not trying to, not trying to read up a storm, just sort of meditating on my, meditating on my dreams and trying to, uh, trying to listen to myself. I do have a very, very big decision coming up here. I don't quite know when I leave and I don't quite know where I go next. I'm more or less set on not returning to San Francisco right away after I leave here, I leave Detroit. I'd like to go somewhere else as an intermediary and spend a little bit of time. If nothing else, somewhere close to nature. Um, if I have an aversion to returning to San Francisco, that would that would be that would probably be the reason. As a matter of fact, I've I've said before that if I'm going to go back to San Francisco, it, it's going to have to be. I want to live in the west half of the city, and I want to live somewhere very close to Golden Gate uh, Park. That is a substantial amount of greenery. It's the polar opposite of where it is that I used to live, which was just an urban, very urban center, like right by the Caltrain station. So, I don't know. I'd like to live somewhere that's that's green, that's not in the middle of a major city, but I want there to be things to do. I think I want there to be people around. So it's a very, very strange balance to strike. It's a difficult balance to strike. Like, I think my ideal living situation, actually, okay. So I was on Oakland University's campus yesterday. Like I was driving through and there is a ropes course that is in the trees. Like there's a zip line and a whole bunch of like, I don't know what you call them, like the scaffoldings in, in trees. Like there's this um, obstacle or, or ropes course you can do, which is you're basically up in the trees doing things. And I knew that was there. I saw it last fall, but I couldn't see it because of all the leaves. This is the first time I drove by it since the uh, winter came. And I could actually see all this stuff. And I was like, that looks really cool. It looks like a lot of fun. And I thought about it, and I was like, if I had the opportunity to live in a treehouse, like, not not like a treehouse, like in, in somebody's backyard, like it's just a box that somebody threw up, like, but an actual house, like one of those mini houses that happened to be elevated above the forest floor. And maybe there's a set of walkways, so it's not just... It's not just your house, but there's like a neighborhood of houses and you have, so there's a community of houses that are up in the trees and you can like, there's walkways that go between them. I think if, if I could live like that kind of living environment, I think that would be awesome. I would love that. 
I don't know why, but that just appeals to me so much. I know it's like not possible and not practical because trees grow. They grow at different rates. Like it would be impossible to maintain a foundation of a house that's just hanging in the air. So it's, it's, I don't know. It reminds me of a movie. What is it? Is it like Peter Pan hook? I basically am saying I want to be a lost boy because I guess what I want to be. There's the, there's the Puer Eternus, the eternal child coming up again. Just want to, I don't want to, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. But I, my ideal living situation is I think somewhere very close to nature, but also close to like a downtown area. Like, I don't know why, but the city of Aspen, and I've never, I've never been to Aspen, is the kind of city that comes up. Like, I imagine just living right on the cusp of nature. So you have like woods in your backyard, but if you go out your front door, you can walk a block or two and then you're on like a downtown main street and there's everything you could need right there. And I don't know, I visualized that and that just seems like the perfect place for me. Like I want to be on the cusp of wilderness, but also on the cusp of some sort of community, which is probably a pretty common common desire but if, if I was going to buy a house that would be that'd be what I, I'm looking for I don't know where I'd find that exactly Colorado's some small town in Colorado um, not Aspen but somewhere Aspen-esque is probably probably a good start this is what this is kind of the line of thinking that brought me to Tahoe I know that there's like you could go watch people getting drunk and gambling and doing crazy stuff. You know, if you wanted to just go people watch, but there's also probably lots of hiking and, you know, you, you could optionally ski. Doubt I'm going to be doing any downhill skiing. I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now middle-aged. I'm calling it. So yeah, skateboarding, skiing, snowboarding, all this shit, that is, uh, the, those days are definitely behind me. I would like to try cross-country skiing, actually. I was quite keen on trying cross-country skiing this past winter. And there was a couple of days I had off of work on weekdays where I thought maybe I could go find some place where I could uh, do some cross-country skiing and it wouldn't be crowded because it's, you know, a work day. Uh, but the presence of the snow just never quite aligned with those. And, you know, on the colder days, the colder weekends, I was never able to talk myself into it. It's the kind of thing I wish I could just do. Like, I don't want to go somewhere and rent skis and then, you know, take them out on somebody else's property. And, like, I, I just want to have some cross-country skis or some snowshoes and just leave my place and go do the thing, you know. I was like, I don't want to go, I don't want to drive, you know, 10 miles and sample this whole thing, you know. I was like, I'm not going to be here long enough to make it a, a regular pastime. I just wanted to try it. I wish I knew somebody who owned them and was willing to lend them to me. But maybe if I end up in Tahoe and I'm there this winter, I will try some cross-country skiing. Sounds like good cardio, but we'll see. What the hell else is going on?
I've been re-watching Better Call Saul, which is an absolutely phenomenally good television show. I like it a good deal more than I like than I liked Breaking Bad. I really liked Breaking Bad quite a bit. But that show is it's old enough now that I'm I'm kinda like, you know, just just give it up. Like it's it's it ended like how long was ago was it? Like eight years ago? Jesus time flies. But it ended so long ago that I, I more or less think, you know, it's time to just it's time to contemporize. Like find something find something else. You know, stop obsessing over the past. And so uh, you know, I, I have been watching Better Call Saul. I've been watching it as it aired um, for the last four seasons. Absolutely spectacular show. Like phenomenal writing. Uh, very well acted. Very good story. You know, it's very, very well paced. I think that is the common, the common praise of it is that the pacing is very, very good. It doesn't try to. I mean, actually, after watching Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, like most TV shows, you turn on and it's like you're trying to be too clever and try to you're trying to do too much too fast. Like I appreciate when there's just a few things going on, and they're just done very, very well. And it's not too in your face about how it's how it looks. But anyway, so now now everything that I'm thinking about in my own personal life. Like there's a book that I'm reading on neuroscience called The Master and His Emissary. And it's about the whole right brain, left brain thing and how our conceptions of left brain and right brain thinking are typically wrong. Like, sure, the two hemispheres of the brain do serve different functions. Like, there is a bit of a division of labor, but the way we understand them, uh, left brain, you know, logical, right brain, creative, it's somewhat imprecise. It doesn't quite, doesn't quite add up. And the book talks about that at great length. Written, I think, by a, a neuroscientist and ultimately makes a philosophical point. I think the point is, you have the two halves of the brain. How did they lead to the creation of the Western world? Um, that I find fascinating. The thought that really the world we live in didn't just pop into being yesterday. Like it's sort of the long, it is the culmination of a couple thousand years worth of ideas and history that have been flowing around. And these ideas sort of play a tug of war. And this just happens to be where we are one facet of where we are in the current struggle. Uh, You know, this is what is currently manifesting itself and of course will change as it always does. So it kind of takes that approach. It says, I think the subtitle of the book is how the brain made the modern world or the Western world, something like that. Something I'm very interested in. But the book itself makes the point, I think, in the second chapter, which is to say that once you come up with an analogy, once you say, like, the brain is a computer, or you say that a road with traffic on it, lots of cars on it, is like a river 
like water flowing through a river. Once you draw an analogy and you start thinking about something as if it were something else, like you say, this is, you liken something you're trying to understand to something else via an analogy or a simile. Then you're constraining your brain to think of the thing that you're trying to understand by the constraints of the thing you're trying to think of. So it may not be that traffic on a road, like lots of cars driving down one particular road, is it may be nothing like a river. That 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 comparison may actually fall down in several ways. But once you start thinking along those lines, you have trouble backing out and seeing it differently. And this is pretty much the brain's only way of understanding things. We have to say, this is like X. The whole idea that the brain is basically like a computer. The brain is nothing like a computer, but there are certainly comparisons you can draw in the way that it functions. But as soon as you start thinking of the brain as a computer, then you start limiting your own understanding of how the brain works because anything that doesn't fit into the computer model is more likely even by educated people who are studying the brain is more likely to be rejected. This is, this is the danger. I forget where I was going with that. I generally think that when I, when I forget where I'm going, it doesn't really matter. You just, just keep going with it. Not like I'm on script here, but I'm also reading another book now about the philosophy of science, and it kind of talks about the history of science. And it is, what is it called? It's called The Knowledge Machine, How Irrationality Invented Modern Science. And this is, of course, a very troubling, troubling book. Um, I personally like science. If, you, if you're familiar with what I talk about, I like science and I like the scientific method. And I think it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's definitely one of our greatest inventions. Um, but of course the question, the question does come up, like the modern scientific method, our understanding of the world via the scientific method is relatively new. It only really cropped up maybe 400 years ago. You could say it started, I think, with the invention of uh, Newtonian calculus to explain the motions of the stars. Uh, it's, it's definitely started with astronomy. It could be that it was Copernicus or Kepler, but a shift in our understanding of what's happening in the sky in deep space basically getting rid of the geocentric model of the universe. Now, it's not as though there weren't scientific ideas prior to this. This is something I've done a lot of reading about in the last few years, like understanding philosophy. And if you're studying philosophy, you get to ancient Greece and you learn about the pre-Socratics. So, I mean, Democritus, is the philosopher who originally conceived of the notion that, well, matter must be made of, of 
indivisible particles, which he called atoms. And these atoms can't be split. They can't be adjusted. They're just, they, they are the constituents of all matter that we see. And this was, this was an attempt to wrestle with, I think, the paradox that Heraclitus uh, brought up, just to say, you know, that everything is change. That if you, if you, he said, I think famously, the way it's put is that if you stand in a river, you can't stand in the same river twice because it's always changing. It's always different water that you happen to be standing in. It's never the same river. And he said, this was all of life. Life is all change. And so there were attempts to understand if this idea is true, what is the mechanism by which this happens? It's sort of like our understanding of, of Darwin. We didn't understand Mendelian genetics immediately. So we understood Darwinian principles. We said, okay, they must work, but it was, it took, it took a few decades at least before we really understood, um, the genetic mechanism that facilitated uh, Darwin's theory of, of evolution. So yes, Democritus says atoms. And that is of course why we named atoms atoms when we found them today. But he, he had roughly the idea. And I wanna say it was Epicurus expanded on this idea. He took it and said, yeah, the, the universe is made of, of void and atoms. And he thought that atoms were always drifting in one direction downward and they would occasionally erratically shift at random. And that, that meant that they would clump together at random and this is how things formed. Eventually you get enough of these atoms together and you know, they, they clump together and form, let's say the earth or animals or trees or whatever, like rocks. And of course, uh, Empedocles, um, Empedocles talked about, he was the guy who said that there are four rhizomata or what are commonly referred to as elements but he used the term rhizomata, which meant root, but uh, that the, everything is made out of fire, air, earth, and water, which is, of course, we know this to be false now. I read an interesting, I'm reading a book by Michael Pollan called Cooked. Cooked. Um, I love Michael Pollan. He's one of my favorite writers and I love listening to his audiobooks. Um, not least of all because of what he writes about. He writes about food. I haven't read his book on psychedelics, although I am very curious too. I started reading it, haven't finished it. Maybe I'll get to that one sometime. But he mentioned at the beginning of Cooked, he divides the book into four parts and talks about the four methods of cooking as they correspond to these four elements. And he says that, you know, our modern scientific understanding may, we know that most things are made of, like, let's say, carbon, and there's oxygen and nitrogen. Like we have this scientific understanding of, of what makes up the world and what makes up our food and you know nutrition and all that. 
But he says, really, that's just at the scientific level. At the psychological level, we still experience the world very much as Empedocles put it. You know, we, we still experientially understand the world to be out of these sort of four elements, which I think is true. Our brains don't intuitively grasp modern chemistry. You have to force it on yourself. Um, it's very, very unnatural. But in any case, Empedocles also came up with the idea that sounds remarkably like modern evolution. He said that nature just produces lots of animals at random. So maybe two-headed dogs, you know, five-legged cats, just all sorts of crazy stuff. And they're really only the well-adapted ones, the ones that were fitted for survival would persist. And the other ones would die off. Now, it's not quite evolution because he never said anything about any kind of uh, gradual mutation over time. He just thought nature or the gods, whatever he believed in, gave rise to these different random organisms. And the idea that the better adapted ones would survive is really the only thing that, you know. So, so we have this idea of evolution and of the random erratic motions of atoms, you know, sort of resembling quantum mechanics. There's a lot of pillars of modern science which are there in pre-Socratic Greek thinking about 2,500 years ago. And so it's, it's curious, like, Obviously, the Greeks were just guessing. There were, I mentioned a couple of pre-Socratics who happened to have theories that sound roughly correct, you know, pursuant to our modern scientific understanding. But there were other pre-Socratics who had wilder theories that we know now to be just completely incorrect. We know, for example, that matter is not made up of the four rhizomata that Empedocles thought of. So they were basically just guessing. They were shooting in the dark, and they really had no way of knowing whether one theory versus another was was better. This is essentially the problem of modern-day theology. Uh, there really is no evidence for any one particular variant of Christianity. So what reason do you have for preferring one variation of the stories over another variation of the stories? You don't have any evidence. Pre-Socratics were looking at it like this. They had different worldviews. They had different ideas about the mechanisms of how the world operated, but they really didn't know how to go about observing things, about gathering evidence and conducting experiments the way, you know, Aristotle taught us to. And so they really had no reason to believe one theory over another. And so that's why these ideas really did not take root as modern science. They, they didn't understand. That's really the question of the book, The Knowledge Machine. I haven't finished it, so I don't quite know what the answer is. And I, I'm not sure that there is an answer. I'm pretty sure the book will just present an idea that might act as an answer, but it's probably not the answer. But the question is, our drive to understand the world and a sort of experimental approach to it that has existed for a very, very long time. 
I mean, Aristotle conducted experiments on animals. Like he, he was a crazy, crazy polymath who did, he became a master of several disciplines and really influenced the way we think about things. There's a lot about Aristotle I don't understand. And I don't think I have to, but I do give him credit for understanding that you need to get down into reality and sort of play with it in order to really understand it. I certainly don't think you can just dream your way into understanding the world, which seemed to be Plato's uh, conception. But this is like over 2,000 years old. So why did it take so long for human beings to finally catch upon science? Like, what was it? We, we had mathematics back then. We had Greek thinking. You can imagine the library at Alexandria, for example, that they're all of the world's knowledge right at your fingertips on these scrolls. What is it? What is it that differentiates that from the European Enlightenment? Like what was the magic ingredient that caused modern science to arise when it did? Why didn't it happen sooner? Is I think the question the book initially posits, but then it goes on to say, well, it shouldn't be a question of why did it take so long, but the question of why did it happen at all? And he talks about stories. He gives examples that are both fairly old and very modern about how scientists, scientists are human beings, much in the way you think that they would be human beings. They are not dispassionate, cold observers of things. And they have their prejudices. They have their favored paradigms. There are ways that they have of looking at the world that they privilege over all others. It's very easy for a scientist to fall in love with the way of thinking and then to just hold to that. And that is both necessary and error prone. It's necessary because people do need to be champions for paradigms. Like it can't just be that the ground shifts anytime somebody has a change of heart. You do need people to stand up for what they believe. But at the same time, things do have to change. Ways of thinking, modes of thinking do have to be considered outdated at some point and supplanted. If that doesn't happen, if people aren't willing to fight for new ideas, new things, then no progress can be made. And it's a little bit, it's, it's odd. It's odd to imagine that I'd like to believe that science is in a completely objective process, that really scientists receive their training and they understand how to apply the scientific method and they wouldn't bring prejudices or personal vendettas to the table. I do remember like a girl that I dated was a primatologist and she was talking about how she was in classes with people who were arguing about things like the professor would take one point of view and a perfectly well-educated, knowledgeable student would take another position and they would argue. 
And I was like, why is the argument happening? Like, aren't, aren't these things like, I feel like it's either, you know, enough to say that you don't know, or you do know, like you have sufficient evidence one way or another, or, or you don't, in which case you say, I, we don't know yet. We don't know enough to conclude. And in my reading of science as a non-scientist, just as a civilian, a layperson who's interested in it, you get these kinds of debates. You get people arguing for one position or another when there really is no evidence. There isn't enough evidence to make a conclusion either way. I, probably the most famous example of this I can just pull out of a hat like a rabbit would be Einstein and the EPR paradox. So the idea is you can, particles of matter when they travel are both a particle and a wave. They, they are not little corpuscles of matter that, that travel through the, it's not like a, a bowling ball that rolls down an alley. It's not that linear. It's not that straight. It's not, it's not like the ball has a definite position. If you're talking about like a, a particle of light, like a photon, it isn't a ball traveling through space. It is, it is a wave that is traveling through space and it's kind of spread out over an indeterminate amount of area. That the best we can say is that if you solve for the wave function of the particle, this would be the Schrodinger equation, solve the Schrodinger equation, get the wave function. What you can do is get a probability distribution, which says that if you try to observe the particle at a given point in time, you know it's going to be between this point and this point with a certain level of probability, say point A and B, you know, if you you know, measure the area under the curve, it's gonna be here with about a 40% chance, let's say. You know, it has to be somewhere within the probability distribution, so it's all 100%, but you don't know exactly where. So this is a little bit strange. Like once you observe the particle, then that's where the particle is. The It's like it says, the wave function collapses. It's essentially spikes, so the probability distribution is in the one place that you observe the particle. Like there's no longer uncertainty. You've just opened the box and you see that the cat is either dead or alive. It answers the question for you. Now, so the question is, in, in light of this, if, if I've managed to communicate this in a way that makes sense, How exactly is it that the particle knows where it is? We don't know. We can't say until we observe the particle where the particle is. We only have the wave function, which gives you a probability distribution as to where it is most likely to be. As soon as you observe the particle, then we know right where it is. Wave function collapses. The question is, was the particle there in that one place you saw it once you observed it? Was it there the whole time before you observed it? Or was it really kind of all spread out all over the place and you actually caused it to end up in one place by observing it? Now, Einstein thought 
the particle must be somewhere. Like it can't be that there's this weird wave-like uncertainty to matter. Like it, like it acts like a wave, but then as soon as you observe it, it becomes like a particle. You know, it suddenly has a definite position. It's, um, he thought it meant that quantum mechanics was incomplete. He believed in what uh, he referred to as the um, hidden variable theory, what came to be known as the hidden variable theory. There's just some element of quantum mechanics in addition to the wave function that we don't know about. And if we knew it, we would be able to tell you exactly where the particle is prior to observing it. The alternative is that the, you know, the particle isn't anywhere until you observe it. And Einstein held to his position that quantum mechanics must be incomplete. Like there must be something we just don't know. But if we knew that, that hidden variable, if we could account for it, we would know where the particle was. It wasn't until roughly 10 years after he had his death that a guy named Bell performed a simple experiment that showed that the idea of hidden variables is incompatible with quantum mechanics. So essentially Einstein is wrong. The particle is actually spread out everywhere until you observe it, at which point it, it ends up in that one place you found it. There was no evidence either way prior to Bell doing his simple experiment and there was no way of knowing so this argument that raged in quantum mechanics for, I think, about 25 years between Einstein and, and his posse and the people who believed the other um, position, we didn't know. This was an argument that was not based in knowledge. It was based in, this is what I think, because it seems consistent with the paradigm that I'm operating in. Now, I'm not saying this to give any sort of, I'm not doing this to pick on Einstein, to be perfectly honest. If it weren't for Einstein, we'd still be back in the, basically the modern technological dark ages. Yeah, the book, the book of the knowledge machine talks about Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he talks about the idea of paradigm in this. This is probably the last greatest work in the philosophy of science that was published over 50 years ago now. But he talks about how scientists end up getting locked into a particular paradigm. They end up seeing things like their, their worldview from a scientific perspective is framed a certain way it's biased a certain way and once you're in there you really can't break out of it it's extraordinarily difficult it takes it takes a phenomenal individual uh to break us out of those sorts of paradigm ways of thinking uh he he mentions one example which is in physics um well, what, what is the format? So there's a paradigm that's well established. You have entrenchment of a thought. Then there's a catastrophe. It turns out that that paradigm doesn't explain everything. There are more questions piling up that cannot be answered, that cannot be reconciled with the current paradigm. 
and somebody comes along and says, let's think about it a different way and bestows upon the scientific field the new way of thinking, which actually answers more questions, which causes a split. But it's this paradigm shift thinking, which is key. Um, and to apply this back to Einstein, like there was Newtonian mechanics, there was the Faraday understanding of electromagnetism, uh, Maxwell's equations, so to speak. And there was this, uh, this idea called the ultraviolet catastrophe, which is if you solve a mathematical equation, it ends up spiking to infinity in a way that, in a place where it doesn't make sense, in a place where that can't be the answer. And so Einstein took another look at it, and what he devised was a way of breaking out of this catastrophe. And this is what, this is what gives birth to, you know, modern quantum mechanics. Uh, this is what he won the Nobel Prize for, that the, his explanation of the photoelectric effect. I'm not a physicist, by the way. I'm talking completely out of school. I'm really more interested in the philosophy of science and what it is that distinguishes a scientific idea from a pseudoscientific one. And this is a very tricky problem because scientific ideas so often come from pseudoscience. I learned recently that Newton's theory of gravitation, the idea that heavenly bodies act on each other, like they exert a force on each other, actually came from astrology. I don't, I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but the, he, he had to take that idea and he said, okay, I'll develop it quantitatively, mathematically, because I think that there's something to it. But he was hesitant to develop the theory because he didn't want it to reflect poorly on him. People thought of astrology as highly in Newton's day and 2000 years ago, for that matter, as they do now. There are a few adherents to it. There are people that practice it. And there does seem to be something to it that doesn't quite rise to the level of scientific rigor. But people generally think of it as just being this nonsense that's practiced by fringe mystics. And Newton was like, I'm a reputable guy. I don't want to be seen as having taken anything from astrology and, and made it, you know, used it to develop my own theories. And so it's a very, very difficult question. I think if you ask your average scientist, well, what, what delineates something that's scientific from non-scientific? I think if you're talking to a real credible scientist, a scientist who knows and who is, at least has the philosophical disposition to question things, I think they would concede that's a very, very hard line to draw, you know? the idea that there's maybe some ideas out there that are crackpot theories that we should just discard because they're not scientific enough. It's like those, a lot of those ideas which would have been discarded for the same reason, for the same sentiment, one, 200, 500 years ago, have given rise to some of our modern scientific ideas and understanding. And so it's, it's a very, very tricky philosophical problem, and I don't understand it, but I am fascinated by it. And it does, it does make things trickier. 
I, I, I'm fond of saying that, uh, you know, I, I dodged talking about politics for so many years because I, I didn't think I understood the requisite, the prerequisite for understanding modern politics. And that would be, that would be history. If you understand history, I think you understand what's going on in politics a lot better than other people do. And I've, I've actually added to that. If there is a political matter that I want to understand better, I want the legal opinion as well. So I, I, I'm fond of saying this, but if you want to, if you want to start looking at politics more rationally and less passionately, less heatedly, if you want to get away from having an emotionally charged reaction every time these sorts of things come up, study history and study the philosophy of law, study jurisprudence, because history will teach you that nothing we are facing in our age is wholly unprecedented. Everything that's happened happening now has happened before. And so there's potentially there's potentially steps to deal with it, or at least there is a probably a precedent that would help us understand how we might move forward with the least risk of doing something terribly wrong. And I say study jurisprudence because that means if you understand the legal issues behind any one political point, you understand that nothing, no political issue is as simple as either political party you know, the right or the left, Democrats or Republicans would have you believe. It's not black and white. It's, it, there's, there's, it's all gray area. There's very few places where I would say you can fall down on one side or the other and be completely correct. Just this tug of war has to happen the way that it happens. But science is important to me, and it's important enough that I want to understand where it has been, where it has come from, and more importantly, how we can control where it is going. Because science doesn't always get everything right. It's probably the best system we have. Okay, so I guess I would say I, I seek to understand science for the same reason that Nietzsche sought out to understand Christianity. Nietzsche wasn't actually the vehement anti-Christian that people make him out to be. If you actually read the passage in the gay science where he says God is dead, if you read that whole thing in its context, you can tell that he's not celebrating the fact. He is very, very concerned about what the, what the death of Christianity will mean for civilization, what it will mean for people. And so what he was trying to do in his philosophy was to uncover the roots of Christian morality. Where did it come from? Because he felt that if he could understand that, he could maybe recreate something that would serve the same function in a civilization where its cultural mythology was dying. He didn't want the effects of the death of Christianity to affect civilization as terribly as it might, as he thought it was going to. And so he sought out to understand what its constituent elements were so he could recreate it. 
I think I have a similar question about science. Science is always... I'm curious to know how long our modern scientific understanding will last. At some point, the civilization we live in will collapse. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means the United States goes belly up. I don't know if that means the United States and Europe, like what you would traditionally think of as Western civilization, what's been influenced by Christianity. If we're so interconnected now through globalization and through the internet and everything that when, when civilization collapses, it'll be everything. You know, there are pockets of knowledge, for example, like Aristotle, ancient Greek philosophy, we only have because they were transferred into the Arabic world and they were preserved there through the dark ages. And they were reappropriated by, you know, our side, if you will, by Western society during the Renaissance. But if there hadn't been that failover, if there hadn't been the Arabic world to take on the ideas and develop them, we might have lost them entirely. And so it's a question of when everything goes belly up, you know, how, how drastic will it be? What is everything? And is there is there any sort of hedge we can take against this to preserve things? No, this is not a new idea. This is actually, I had a conversation with a friend about a year ago in San Francisco who was telling me about Isaac Asimov's foundation series. And this is, what was it? I think it's about the psycho, psycho history. The book as a matter of science fiction is about a guy who discovers a way of quantifying and predicting the future. So if you look at historical trends and you, you, you put all the variables, for example, that you know about the last 100 or 200 years, or I don't know how far back, but if you, if you can quantify everything correctly, you put it into a model and you can understand roughly the trajectory of where things are headed. So he figures out based on this new field of psychohistory that the world is going to come to a collapse in 300 years, something like that. And the series is about him trying to say, well, how can we preserve all of the world's knowledge as it currently exists against this contingency? And this is certainly a question I've thought about before. I've thought about it probably at more length than, than most people, but not a lot. You kind of think, well, you could put it all onto a hard drive and put it into a Faraday cage so it's not sensitive to, say, massive shifts in uh, electromagnetism. Like if the Earth's pole suddenly shifts drastically and it wipes out all hard drives, could you, could you have this hard drive be a hedge against it? The problem is you get far enough out, a hard drive is worthless to future peoples and future civilizations. It's just this chunk of something. And unless they know how to plug it in, unless they know how to power it just right, it is effectively useless to them. You could try carving something on stone, but what do you put on the stone? I mean, at some point, the at some point, we didn't understand what the hieroglyphics were saying until we uncovered the Rosetta Stone. We needed some way of not only reading what was there, but of translating it into our modern way of talking. 
you know, there was an ancient language that we did have a translation for. We understood how to translate and one we didn't. And so it's just, it's discovering a hop. It's discovering one connection that gets you all the way to understanding. But everything that we know about communication, how we communicate, even if you get around the problem of what can't be physically destroyed and you solve that, the question is what format does it take that it will be useful to anyone in the future, that it's that you, you hedge against any possible way of it getting lost. I don't know. And to be honest, I'm not I'm not that into science fiction. I'm not that into reading fiction in general, so I, I probably it will probably be a long time before I read Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation series, but I'm, in terms of science fiction, if I were going to read science fiction, I think it's, it's Ray Bradbury and Asimov. There's a few, there's a, there's a short list of names that I would want to uh, read. And Asimov is definitely at the top of that list. Arthur C. Clarke. In any case, uh, seems that my headphones are giving me the the warning, the whole wrap it up signal that you typically get. Uh, I guess this would, the headphones are like my producer. If this is like a, a talk show, they're the ones sitting there like, you know, saying, hey, 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 tapping their watch. Like, you know, it's, it's time we go to commercial because we need, we gotta make a bank. Um, yeah, my, my headphones as the producer are pointing to the clock and tapping their watch and saying, hey, you know, wrap it up. So this has been great. Uh, it's been good shout talking. It's been good to get out of the house and just sit somewhere and uh, people watch and uh, yeah, have this conversation with you. We should do this again sometime. Uh, but uh, hey, pandemic peoples out there, I hope you're you're vaccinated. I hope if you get your second shot, it doesn't completely wipe you out make you feel sick. I've heard some horror stories, so I hope that fate doesn't befall you. In any case, take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you. Uh, give someone you love a hug. And until next time, yeah, just take it easy. Uh, cheers.